Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Wendy Murphy, a former child abuse and sex crimes prosecutor who teaches at New England Law School in Boston and heads the Women and Children's Advocacy Project under the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. Wendy specializes in the representation of crime victims, especially women and children. She also writes and lectures widely on victims' rights and criminal justice policy and published an expose on the American legal system and justice for some in 2007. We speak with Wendy today about the ERA, its implications for women, especially with respect to Title IX, and the need for a feminist revolution in public policy, law, and in our collective consciousness. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks for joining our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I think one of the unique things about you is that you both teach about sexual violence and gender inequality, as well as practice it. And tell us what you do and why you think that's important. Yeah, I definitely don't practice sexual violence. Just want to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know what you what you meant. Yeah, I teach a seminar called Sexual Violence and Law Reform. I've been teaching it for 20 years at New England Law Boston. And, you know, basically what I do is, which is not what most law students learn, is I teach students what's wrong with the law and how to use their skills as lawyers to fix it. And in that sense, you know, I get to plant seeds, uh, help young lawyers think differently about their roles as lawyers, and also help them to think differently about the law, which is how most lawyers learn. Instead of just reading the law and applying the law to a certain fact pattern, how about reading the law and questioning whether the law is designed to, to do what it purports to do? And, you know, when you are a critical thinker as a lawyer, you're going to have a lot more opportunities to use your skills as an attorney to make things better. And a lot of people go to law school for that reason, right? A lot of my students are women. They've been raped in college um, or they know someone who was raped in college and they take my class because they're outraged at the injustices that women endured uh, when they were raped in college. And what I love about how they feel at the end of my class is that they, they sort of feel not just that they have consciousness, but that they have now made sense of what didn't seem to make sense when they saw the injustice. And, and the, what I mean by that is I help them understand how the law is designed to perpetuate sexual violence rather than prevent it. And it, it makes them a little crazy because nobody likes to hear that the law is designed to cause harm, but it, it at least gives them clarity. Oh, that's why all this horrendous stuff happened. So that's helpful. And then I do litigate, as you mentioned, I litigate in court as well as teach, because I think to be a really effective lawyer on behalf of women's civil rights and constitutional rights, which is my area of expertise, you have to be uh, kind of in the academy and in the trenches at the same time. Because if you're writing scholarly stuff and you know what's going on that's, that's hurting women in real world cases, you're, you're a better scholar and vice versa. If you're in the trenches litigating cases and you understand what the academy is saying about these big doctrines that affect your client's rights, then you're going to be a better litigator. So. I make it my, you know, my cause, if you will, to try to keep my head and feet <laughs> in both places at all times. It's hard, but I, I try. 
just to uh, sort of give a shout out to other people who are doing that, how many other people are there? And can you name some? Um, other? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think when I first started doing this work, which was 30 years ago, I would say it was exceedingly rare and so rare that when I would fill out my annual bar license card to renew the categories that they gave me to check the boxes and, you know, identify what kind of lawyer I was, they didn't include anything I was doing. (laughs) So I always had to handwrite something on the side of the paper. And in any case, there always was this box for if you were teaching, if you were a professor. And I was never just doing that. I was always doing both. So I might have had a half half an opportunity to identify myself. I think it's very hard, frankly, for a lawyer who tries cases to think like a lawyer who's an academic, because the skill set is very different. Knowing how to try a case, it, it's just a very different thing to do as a lawyer than knowing how to analyze law, critique it, you know, really deconstruct doctrines and articulate why they're problematic. Um, They're just very different skill sets. So I would say the number of people who do both well is small, but there are certainly plenty out there. Lots of lawyers who do activist work, impact litigation work, whatever the category they care about, whether it's race or sex or, you know, people with disabilities, immigrant work, It's all, it's a small, I would call it a small group. If you could put them all together, it'd be a relatively small group, but they're all that kind of lawyer. You know, they're really smart. They can write a very good brief for an appellate court, maybe even write scholarly research papers, though most don't bother because it's extremely time consuming, but then they're also good in court, good, good in the trenches. So there are some. And, and many are very dedicated and are, are not lawyers for money, which certainly describes me. I do about, I don't know, 80% pro bono work, and I always have. And it is not because I don't want money. I do want money. But there isn't any money on women's side of the V in, in lawsuits. There just isn't. And, you know, the more, the more experienced I became, the more I realized it's, it's important for me to keep doing this work because although I became more valuable and could have commanded an enormous salary at any law firm, I realized that that was exactly the reason I shouldn't go and join a law firm and, and take that enormous salary because it was really built into this idea that that's why women are oppressed. That's why women are second-class citizens. That's why women suffer so much violence and abuse. The money is not with them. So I wanted to be, in a sense, uh, a very valuable financially speaking, a very valuable resource that wouldn't cost our movement money. I'm guessing your class is an elective for third-year law students? Yes, Uh, two L's and three L's. Okay, and most of the students you mentioned were women. Of the men who decide to take it, uh, what percentage is that, like 5%, 10%? Uh, it depends. Every year, uh, there are some men. This year, I had only one man. In the recent past, it's ranged from, you know, th- let's say three out of 20. I, I usually have 20 students, sometimes a little more, uh, and sometimes a little bit less. It depends. But maybe, you know, three or four. And, and sometimes I've had as many as um, almost half the class, but never have I had a majority of men. Never. And it's interesting. Um, One of the most interesting things about my students in terms of patterns I've seen over the years between and the differences between men and women is their perception of pornography. Because I teach one of my classes, I focus very much on pornography and how it is causally connected to violence against women. 
and you know just sort of the common sense behind it all when you create these propagandizing norms of violent behavior and make them erotic and then expect people not to find violence erotic it's just you know it's something that I don't think they think about, but then once we talk about it, they and they can put the dots together and feel a bit more manipulated rather than just um, entertained. It's helpful. But the funny part is I warn them about the class material. I say, it's going to be very difficult for you. Um, and I'm sorry in advance that it's going to be so awful, but this is important stuff and we've got to cover it. And I just want to warn you, uh, if anybody feels the need to leave, just get up and leave. And, you know, it's sort of a trigger warning plus. And then in the aftermath, it's funny in a, in a not so funny way that the men will say, Professor Murphy, we don't understand why you warned us. Like that's just, that's just run of the mill, boring stuff because it is so violent. The stuff that I showed the, show them is really the worst of the worst, which is sort of mainstream today, but the women are shocked and not all of them, but you know, some of the women are extremely distraught to see what is considered mainstream porn. So that always gets to me, the idea that men don't understand why I warned them about their feelings. And the women are, you know, severely traumatized by having to see visual imagery of what for many of them is, you know, a depiction of a, of a violent act. And maybe they went through something similar or they took my class because they knew someone uh, who went through something similar. And for men, they're just like, no, nah, that's what we do. So, so it's sort of, which is also a common theme in other areas of my class that I teach, that something is perceived as extremely traumatic and violent and horrendous and, you know, dastardly and unconscionable to a woman and is delightful and pleasurable and orgasmic to a guy. The very same thing. And that is our culture. And that is a, a, an ongoing war that women have struggled with for a very long time. And propagandizing violence as erotic, I think, has made our, our collective appreciation for the, for the problem of porn uh, much more difficult. And I often liken it to, um, you know, or I try to have us compare it to minstrel shows because for some reason we have, we have a good understanding of why minstrel shows were horrendous and dangerous and the worst of the worst kind of entertainment, this idea that you would put on these shows where black people were depicted as cheerful and stupid and in really enjoyed their lives as, as stupid people and were happy in their subjugation. And the fact that we understand how wrong that is and how galling it was that that was considered entertainment, and then that we can't just sort of pick up that idea and plop it into porn and get the same point. It's such, it's so clear to me that porn is women's minstrel show. And why we don't see it is very, very frustrating to me. It's frustrating to me as well. And my the few friends of mine, it's frustrating too. But, you know, isn't that just indicative of how much more sexist than racist we are as a society uh, where we can use analogies that apply to race? And when we bring it into the sex gender sphere, no one seems to mind. It's just so normalized. To your point about how you don't make any money on the women's side of your litigation cases, what do you think passing the ERA would do? Would that actually help you bring potentially more financial reward to our cases if sex was... That's an interesting question. No, I still think there would be... 
I still think it would be difficult. There's always been an enormous amount of money against women's equality. Like astronomically high amounts of money are being spent to maintain women's inequality. And for good reason. Unless women remain second-class people without fully equal protection of the law, pornographers couldn't make porn the way they do because it would depict the kind of degrading, discriminatory behavior that would be prohibited. Or at least there'd be an arg- a better argument about why it shouldn't happen. And, you know, rape laws would work better to prevent rape. Right now, they actually permit rape. And again, just in terms of sex trafficking and pornography, if women were equal and and entitled to equal protection of the law, the laws around rape and sex trafficking and pornography would have to be better because women suffer so much disproportionately high, high rates of harm related to those areas, those industries, if you will. So yeah, I do think that the moneyed interests behind women's equality are tied to those industries and not just those industries because male dominance and the you know hierarchical distribution of wealth based on sex has been around forever and a day. And you know even if we fixed porn and fixed rape and fixed sex trafficking, we'd still have moneyed interests that were male dominant and that would seek to perpetuate that male hierarchical preference that men, you know that men have more money than women i think it would still be there but to your question of would the era help i think it would help in the sense that we would we would have a stronger legal foothold in arguments against the harm not necessarily against the money being more readily available for men than women but just the harm that comes from that because now we really can't make good arguments there's so much tolerance in the law for sex-based harms, sex-based suffering from rape and domestic violence to discriminatory employment experiences and even you know, equal pay, pregnancy discrimination, these sort of very classic sex-based things that women suffer. The law has a very wide door, if you will, through which those discriminatory harms are permitted. And with ERA in place, that door would close quite a bit. So much less discrimination, much less harm would be tolerated. And that's why the moneyed interests are so opposed to the ERA. You close the door on how much harm the law will tolerate against women, and you have necessarily clamped down a bit on those profit margins. And that's really what this is about. That's why neither political party actually supports the ERA. This is an old saying that I think still works. We've always known this. Race trumps sex, politics trumps race, and money trumps everything. So of course women are not protected by either party because money is sex neutral, if you will. And just looking at the history of our country, we know that control over women's lives and control over their bodies and and particularly sexual access to their bodies has always been a bipartisan male entitlement. It's not like men who call themselves Democrats don't know that, and men who call themselves Republicans do. Men know they have supremacy. It is a constitutionally mandated rule of law in the United States of America. It has been since 1868, and women have never been equal since that 14th Amendment exclusion of women took place. Again, back in 1868, 14th Amendment creates this concept called equal protection of the law and excludes women. Men have equal protection of the law, but women do not. That was intentional. And we still don't have equal protection of the law. And what that means, you know, it's a little bit of a complicated legal doctrine, but what it means boiled down is all the rights 
and privileges that you believe you have as a human being, as a citizen in this country, you have them to a weaker degree than men. Because when you go to court to enforce them, the court is only required to enforce them to a level of equal protection that's sub-equal to others. That's where women sit and have been for a very, very long time. So even if we pass a law that says women are entitled to equal pay and we think, oh, that's terrific because, you know, equal pay means equal pay. Well, no, if you then suffer unequal pay and you go to court to enforce it, you say, well, wait a minute, the legislature passed a law saying I'm entitled to equal pay and I'm not getting equal pay. The court is allowed to say, well, you're not really entitled to the the meaning of the word equal as equal because you don't have the 14th Amendment equal protection doctrine behind you. And until you have constitutional equality, I, as a judge, am allowed to construe that word equal to mean less than equal. Equal does not mean equal without that constitutional baseline of full equality, and women don't have it, never have. The thing that irritates me the most about this is how few women actually understand that they're not equal. And even sometimes when you tell them and this, I, I do this exercise with my students sometimes. I'll say, you know, how many of you are feminists? And maybe a few hands will go up. More hands go up now than ever before. But, you know, in the past, maybe a couple of hands would go up, maybe a, a wavering hand would go up. And I would say, well, what's with the rest of you? Why didn't you raise your hand? And some of them would be women. And they'd say, one, you know, one of them would say, well, you know, I just don't see myself as a bra burning lesbian man hater. And <laughs> another would say, you know, I've had plenty of opportunity in my life as a woman, so I don't need to be a feminist because I have had all the equality I need. That's a very white, entitled response. And then the third answer often came from a woman who was either a Black woman or an Asian woman, someone who had another form of oppression. And she'd say, I got so many problems, I can't afford to be a feminist because I'm oppressed in so many ways. And, you know, I'm I'm fascinated to hear the students say these things, but of course, then I would say, well, what is a feminist? And we talk about it. It means you believe in the social, political, and economic equality of women. And I'd say, how many of you agree with that? And they would all raise their hands. And then we would really get into the nitty gritty about who hijacked the meaning to make you think you weren't a feminist. and, And did that happen in order to divide us? And is this just a tactic to prevent women from uniting in solidarity around the importance of feminism and the idea that these are very simple concepts and we don't have to be divided. You could be black or Asian or Jewish or whatever and have whatever feelings you want about any of your, you know, any of your life experiences and they're all legitimate. But if you want to just be equal, you have to unite as a woman with women. Period. <laughs> you have to. It's not that it, those, things, those other things don't matter. It's that the only category for you under which you are constitutionally oppressed is your sex. So if, if you don't fight as sex, you don't ever get anywhere. We could eradicate racism tomorrow and black women would remain second-class citizens. And many black women don't understand this or they've been misled to believe well, it doesn't matter because racism is more important. Racism is more harmful to Black people. That may well be true, but it's also true. And it's certainly you know, up to them to decide what they think is more important. But it's also true that if we prevail and racism gets eliminated tomorrow, only Black women remain second-class citizens. Black men 
get elevated. Black women stay down here in the second class pack with all other women. And, you know, it's hard to talk about this because it sounds like I'm trying to divide people. No, I'm trying to unite people around this vital constitutional issue that the only reason we're not united is because intentionally forces have been uh, thrust upon us to create divisions and fights and battlegrounds. And, you know, don't join with her because she's black, you're white, she's Asian, she's gay, whatever, you know, just keep dividing, 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 dividing women, and then they can't rise up. Well, the powers that be that like us to be divided are not stupid. They know that women only won the right to vote in 1920 when they united as women. And I'm not saying there weren't issues during suffrage. There were. And there was some racist, really bad racist stuff that happened. But if you really peel back the layers and look at the underlying reasons why women were divided and there was racist uh, stuff going on in suffrage, it came from this effort to try to divide women. And that was kind of propped up. It wasn't, it was propped up politically. You know, there was nothing inherent about feminism wanting to be divided along racial lines. This was kind of a big politically imposed issue. Oh, you know, you want to win suffrage in the South, you're going to have to say bad things about black women. And and it worked both ways. There were times, and and in fact, before 1920, during the Civil War amendments, which were the 13th, 14th, and 15th, 13th abolished slavery, 14th, as I said before, created due process and equal protection, but only for men. And then the 15th, which gave black men the right to vote, or I should say protected the right of black men to vote, Those amendments were very important, but that was the first time that there was this divide between sex and race. And it was people like Frederick Douglass, you know, a very highly regarded, respected black man who spoke publicly about it's not it's about how it wasn't necessary to give black women the right to vote. I mean, he was very divisive himself. Now, was he really That kind of guy, did he really think black women were unworthy of the vote compared to black men? Probably not. Was he doing the politically expedient thing? Probably. To serve the white man who was telling him, you know, you want the vote? You want equality? You want equal protection and due process? We want you to exclude black women. And people like Frederick Douglass had to play that game because they wanted these very basic rights. Well, the natural product of dividing black people and women during those amendments was that the divide continued because now women had to fight back. Women had to fight back and say, you excluded us from the 14th amendment. You excluded us from the 15th amendment, all women, black and white women and everything in between. You excluded us. And now we have to fight back to fix the 14th amendment and fix the 15th amendment. And to do that, we needed unity and we weren't united because these forces were now coming around saying, oh, you know, but but black women are different than white women. And, you know, it, it's gotten so much worse over the years. Our splintering, I think, has really reached, I, I don't even know what word to use, but uh, the, the degree to which we are divided now into subcategories of subcategories is really making our future look pretty dire. And I do not feel hopeful about the future. There is no leadership in this country at all to unite women. None. Zero. There used to be. But we are absolutely lost. Our leadership is gone. Most of the mainstream women's groups are corrupt. And what I mean by that is they're literally being funded to do something other than what they purport to be doing. Some of them are just proxies for the Democratic Party. Some of them are literally funded by anti-feminist money, you know, to call yourself 
a feminist group, but in fact promote anti-feminist ideas. And it's hard to see. It's very hard, very hard for women to see the subterfuge or the, you know, the, the disconnect between what a group purports to be doing and what it's in fact doing. Right. And before we get into some of that, I just want to ask you as a follow-up, by the time your students finish your class, do they call themselves feminists? Do all of them 100%, hopefully? I think so. Or at least they, let's just say, they no longer believe that the definition is other than the simple one that I share with them. I don't know a lot of people who, when you tell them what feminism is, would say, I'm opposed. There are some, there are some, but it takes a lot of gall to say, I think women should be unequal, especially today. I mean, who, who wants to say that out loud? There are people, but you know, they tend to be, let's just say, unevolved. (laughs) So getting back to this notion that we're divided and the future is dire. I mean, I, obviously I feel you and I share that I feel that way as well. And one of the ways is the just the broad spectrum of ignorance across, you know, women and women's groups around them not having equal rights and not even knowing, like when I mentioned ERA, what it stands for. And these are women who are Gen Xers or older, some of them, which is shocking. Earned run, uh, earned run average that a lot of younger women. Yeah. And and so, you know, I mean, that's obviously shocking, but then once you tell them what it is and you, you know, I've done screenings of equal means equal, we've talked about it, we've brought in all these other topics that is personally relatable to them with regard to equal pay or domestic violence or, you know, whatever it is and how they would benefit from the ERA, they still don't get activated. And I'm wondering what you attribute that to. Is it just like, compassion fatigue from activism, you know, so much of what we're doing is focused on other areas and we don't see the connection, whether it's immigration rights or, you know, BLM or blah, blah, blah. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts about that. One is that sexism used to be a little bit more obvious because there were laws that said, you know, women shall be treated like crap. (laughs) And, And when it was written like that, it was easier to see. And we've covered a lot of that up, but it's, you know, it's a band-aid. It doesn't actually fix the problem. It's so we don't use the harmful language, but we, but in practice, the courts won't give women equal treatment. And so it's, you know, the same suffering, but without the visibility of having it written into the code directly. But there are some examples where the laws don't equally protect women, like hate crime laws in Massachusetts. Women are excluded. They're just not in the list, even though they suffer the most crimes by far compared to all other categories because of who they are in society. So women have women suffer the most hate crimes and aren't protected at all. That's a pretty blatant in your face. It's written into the code problem that that people could get and should get exercised about. But it doesn't feel as much like discrimination because generations, especially young people, but generations and generations have gone by where girls and young women when they go to grade school and college and even grad school, they're not taught anything about this stuff. So they do learn about racism and they learn about slavery and they learn about immigrants and they learn about categories of, of oppressed people that, that when they're young and impressionable and, you know, want to want to change the world and fix things and so forth, that, you know, it's a wonderful thing about a young person's mind that they really want to help make the world a better place. When you have access to that age, that age group, 
and you don't teach them about women being oppressed, but you teach them about all these other oppressed categories, then of course that's where their excitement will land. And that's to me, probably the most compelling explanation. It's really the propagandizing of young people, especially through public schools, but even through the academy as well, the propagandizing that happens uh, in just in terms of choosing how we teach people um, what oppression is and who it affects and how we leave women out of that. Most of what we teach about women at all levels of education is suffrage. We teach about suffrage. And you know, to young people, that was our victory. So why would we be worried about women's rights when we won? And it was 100 years ago. I mean, you know, what do you got to complain about? It's you've had the right to vote forever. It was a wonderful thing. You know, let's have another party. So as an example, when my daughter was, so we do need to play a more active role in trying to disrupt that. And that's hard. I mean, we can participate by joining PTOs and so forth, but there's a pretty tight stranglehold on the material that kids are allowed to be taught in public schools. And it's pretty tight even in colleges and universities, just in terms of, you know, the moneyed interests that influence who gets to learn what at that level. Uh, It is not feminism. I guarantee you it is not feminism. But, you know, just the idea that we could play a more active role. I mean, I think of the importance of rather than waiting for someone to identify the problem and invite you to a protest, like do it yourself, you know, go look and see and, and give your own gut instinct credit for knowing that there's something that doesn't feel right here. When my youngest was in high school, I forget what grade it was, but I went to the back to school night with, with her and it was a history class. And in the curriculum, the, in the syllabus, there was a description of a section on Renaissance men. And I said, why are you teaching Renaissance men? And as if there were no Renaissance women. And the, the guy, it was a guy teacher, but he looked at me like I had three heads. As if there, he looked at me as if to say, I've never heard of the phrase Renaissance woman. And I was like, that's the problem. That's exactly the problem. <laughs> But that's, you know, that's an example of something one person can do, right? One parent of one kid in one school at one moment can literally raise their hand and say, I find this unacceptable. My kids' schools also um, just never taught Title IX stuff, never taught anything about women during Diversity Week. We always had a Diversity Week program that had, you know, a day of this and a day of that, and then they'd have different lectures and so forth. And it was all about diversity and oppression. And they never had any women's programming ever, 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 ever. So when I called up, this was going back many years, I said, why are you not covering women's oppression and and women's rights in this diversity program? I don't understand this. And they said, oh, you know, now that you mention it, maybe we'll connect you with some students and you could come up with some ideas. And I, were, I talked to the students and then we presented some ideas. I said, we should talk about uh, violence against women and Title IX and I forget what else it was. And, you know, dating abuse and discrimination. And no, they said, no, no, no. What we'd like you to talk about, and this is really all we can let you do, is women in politics and women in sports. And I said, what is wrong with you people? what the hell is wrong with you? That has nothing to do with oppression and diversity at all. Anyway, we had to do it because that was all they would let us do. And not surprisingly, during the panel discussions, for example, during the one about sports, after the panelists were done speaking, the students said, this is one particular student I remember, she raised her hand and said, what I want to know is, 
even though girls are participating in sports and this is all great, I play sports at the high school. And how come when I go to shower, I have to use this crappy locker room and the boys get a really big locker room? And how come the boys can look at us through the glass when we're showering? And, you know, another one said, and how come when when we go play basketball, we have to put our bags way over there while the boys are allowed to put their bags right next to them? All this kind of stuff came up. And it was like, when we're working out in the weight room, the boys come in and talk about our breasts. That's all they wanted to talk about. They weren't interested in celebrating the idea that girls now play sports a lot. They had something to say about sports, but it was related to the topics that we had originally planned to discuss that we were forbidden to talk about. And the exact same thing happened during the, the panel about women in politics. The kids the girls wanted to say, well, let me tell you what's happening to me in my life. Like when I was running for class president, people kept saying I was a bitch. They were writing the word bitch on all the walls in the, in the uh, hallways. Is that legal? You know, this is the kind of stuff that they wanted to talk about that the school forbade them to talk about. So it's a very prevalent, very pervasive problem. The silencing of girls' voices, the invisibility of girls and women suffering, all the direct result of a kind of super agenda, if you will, not a conspiracy, a strategy. I don't like to call these things conspiracies, but it is a strategy. Because if you make women's suffering invisible, they can't rise up about it. Today's young people are super interested in transgender, gay rights, and all this stuff because they are force-fed mountains of information about it on a near-daily basis to the exclusion of lots of other things. And I, and I don't mean, and they, they also are doing a lot also with racism and, you know, there's so much other stuff going on for them. But the point is that when it comes to women's rights, they will not engage. But if you turn it into a conversation about trans women or transgender or gender identity, all of a sudden their eyes light up. Oh, I remember I was learning about that. Oh, I heard about that. Oh, my teacher told me about that. Oh, there's all this stuff on campus about that. So they think it has meaning because they don't have the ability to know what has real meaning for them. They only know what they're being told. I was told this is important, so I'm going to rise up about this issue, even though I'm rising up in my own subjugation and no one seems to notice my subjugation. But I'm still going to be arguing for someone else's suffering because that feels good because everyone around me is doing it and I want to be part of the club. That is a massive, massive problem on women's rights today. And it's why the girls, young girls and young women today, barely even know what the ERA is. And if you, if you try to tell them about it, it kind of resonates with, with the, what they've heard about LGBTQ rights. So it sticks there, but it doesn't seem like a priority. And they certainly don't want to abandon their enthusiasm for all these other categories. So, you know, how do you say to a woman, what is wrong with you? You need to focus on the fact that you are a second-class citizen. And, and what I like to say to people about why it's okay to prioritize your own needs to the exclusion of other things is because once you gain basic equality, your voice will be much louder on everything else you care about. You can scream and yell and fight about LGBTQ or Asian rights or, gay, or Black rights or gay rights. You can fight about anything. But if you are a woman or a girl and you're trying to have your voice heard, it would be a louder voice if you had basic equality and you don't. So fight for equality first and everything else second so that your voice actually matters. 
that's not complicated. So, you know, when you were talking about how the laws in our books have evolved so that overtly sexist and misogynistic laws are less identifiable, I mean, I think there's still some clear sexist laws with regard to like child marriage and rapists, you know, having the rights to sue for custody and of course, reproductive rights. So I'm wondering, I mean, you know, obviously there's a huge connection between the moneyed interests and the fact that women are still our engines of reproduction. So if we were to just hypothetically remove women's abilities to reproduce, what do you think that would do? But this is before we have equal rights. Would we just, just (laughs) I mean, I mean, what, what, you know, would there be less interest in controlling us? I think it would be a significant, a very significant uh, improvement, frankly. I used to ask my students this question. I taught reproductive rights and technologies at MIT once. I also taught it at my law school one year. It wasn't as interesting to me as violence, so I didn't do it for long. But during that time, I would ask my students the hypothetical and ask them to respond in a reflection paper what do you think would happen if babies could be born in large amniotic vats? And, you know, what I mean is what do you think would happen to the, to the power dynamic between men and women? And I always got some very interesting answers, but most were depressing. Like most women said, Oh, that would deprive me of my unique wonderfulness as a woman. And Oh my gosh, wouldn't that be horrendous and terrible and awful. They saw it as a grave loss And I understand that. I mean, I have five children. I get why it feels like a loss not to be able to do that. But thinking politically about the issue, which they weren't, it's to me probably one of the most liberating things we we could conceivably do for women is to liberate them from the burden of being the source of of reproduction of our species. Because, Because it is the dangerous part of it is that it becomes a legitimate basis for oppression. The, you, you know, the differentness problem, right? As soon as we say, well, you, you are different because of this, and it gives us a reason to treat you different. Therefore, oppression is valid, and we can't help it. We, we just can't help it because you are the birther. So I do, it's science fiction to think about, but it is a very liberating idea for me to envision these large amniotic vats where babies would be born because overnight we know what would happen. Abortions would be like a dime a dozen. There would be absolutely no religious objection to them. There would probably probably be an amendment to religious uh, dogma requiring abortions. (laughs) We could never tolerate the amount of birth, just from a pure financial perspective, we could never tolerate the births of all the babies that could occur in these vats. And, you know, that's also true of birthing through humans, but it just making it mechanical would ob- obviously also change the feeling of whether this was more transactional and less about the kind of natural nature of humans. And, you know, relatedly, there would be less of an incentive to prop up religion as, as our opponent in the battle. One of the real problems with abortion law generally is this pitting of women's autonomy against religion, because it's an unwinnable situation. And for me, this was propped up specifically to ensure that women would spin their wheels ad infinitum, because you can never, ever, ever, ever win. When a fundamental right on one side, like a woman's right to autonomy is, or even if you want to call it a fundamental right to abortion, but a woman's fundamental right on one side against a fundamental religious right on the other, 
the law requires balance. It never allows one to trump the other. So you can fight as a woman for the next 800 years. You will never actually win because the other side will always have weight against you. And I think that was designed to send women off into the corner doing busy work and filing lawsuits about the silliness of this and the silliness of that. And, you know, how many days do you have to wait after you go to the doctor? And, you know, what color ink should you put on the paper? This is the stuff we spend enormous resources on in that losing battle. And if I were the queen of the world on this issue, I'd say, forget it. Just give it up. We'll always be able to help each other get abortions. Okay, always. Stop fighting the court. Stop wasting money. We're never going to win. Cancel all the dollars being spent on abortion litigation. Just stop. Don't spend one more dime. Put all that money into getting women to just be equal under the Constitution. Let's just do that. And stop being played. You know, we're being played with regard to abortion jurisprudence. That's how I feel. I do think, you know, I, I asked a question during law school, literally, I'll never forget this, when we were learning Roe versus Wade, which by the way, wasn't that great a decision anyway. It wasn't nearly as good as it could have been. But I remember asking the professor, do you think the results would have been different if we had a severe overpopulation problem? And he said no and, and walked away. And I thought, huh, <laughs> huh. And he didn't explain, but, you know, it kind of struck me that, wow, if the court, if he's right, that the court was going to do what it did, regardless of the fact that we had no space for more babies, then there was more going on there. And, and that really did kind of ring a bell for me about the politics of lawmaking at the Supreme Court level that I didn't really have a good handle on it. Obviously, at that time, I was not, you know, thinking about law that this in the critical way that I do today. But I'll never forget it because I thought, well, well, what kind of idiot would make abortion harder if you don't have don't have resources to feed your people? You know, I, I'm not saying that that's that abortion policy should shift with the tides around population control generally, but irrelevant population is irrelevant. How can that be? It makes no sense. This idea about bodily autonomy without equal rights to me is flawed. And I think this concept of consent is used as a false equivalent in many other legal arguments with regard to women's rights. And I just yeah. wanted to share with you, I, it's so that we can sort of call out the spaces <laughs> where they are. So one of them is just recently, a few months ago, I was looking for you know another show to binge watch and I came across Big Love and I just was curious. So I, before I decided to, whether I wanted to watch the show, I looked up the show on Wikipedia. And of course, I know what the top, you know, what the theme was, the plot is about, I'm sure you know, a polygamous family in Utah. And the person who is polygamous is the man, and he has many wives. And so it was interesting because there's a whole section in Wikipedia on that show about the legal scholarship surrounding that show, which I was unaware of. So there are people who are all across this country in law schools, apparently social work schools, but mostly in law schools legal scholars who call themselves feminists, who was touting the uh, milestone-breaking aspects of the show with regard to concepts around privacy and consent. And they were comparing it to you know, LGBTQ rights. And I just thought, like me, and I don't have a law degree, <laughs> so I don't have that legal framework for thinking critically about this, but I just thought as a feminist, 
wait a minute, how can we have consent when we have unequal rights, when there's women, you know, in these marriages and it's a one-sided deal, it's men with many women, not women with many men. So that seems like to be a false equivalence. And I cannot believe that a whole field of scholarship has been born from this. Well, I spend... I spend a lot of time in my class on consent, believe me. And what I generally teaching my students is that um, the law is designed, when it construes consent, it is designed to permit rape and make no mistake about it. So consent ideally should be should serve as a proxy for autonomy, right? And, and if autonomy matters, then it should mean that the person with autonomy has 100% exclusive unmitigated authority to make decisions. And that requires us to take into account not only the conditions of the mind when making the decisions, but also the social conditions, right? If you make a choice uh, because you have no other choice, that's not a choice. It's not complicated. That's not consent. I try hard not even to use the word consent if I can avoid it outside the context of teaching my students about it, because I think we should use the word autonomy. I think we all, as a revolutionary act, we should only ever use the word autonomy because the word consent is so laden with legal meaning and bad legal meaning, really, really bad legal meaning. When students tell me that they want it, we want to teach consent on our campus. I'm like, no, no, you don't. Teach autonomy and ban the word consent. Like put a big X through it. Hell no. We do not want to function under this regime of consent, which doesn't actually do anything for actual autonomy. But it's hard because the money, the power behind forcing this criminal law concept into all spheres of life is enormous. Consent was never taught on campus in the past because it is a criminal law concept that's very difficult to, to prove, to, to, or I should say it's very difficult to prove non-consent. And so schools never taught consent because it doesn't apply on campus, because campuses don't enforce criminal laws, right? So they don't need to teach people about consent. That's a, the criminal justice system's business. And under civil rights laws, including Title IX, and Title VI, Title IX and Title VI are exactly the same. They are civil rights laws that apply in education and protect people against discrimination, including assault, based on, under Title IX, sex, under Title VI, race, color, and national origin. So they're exactly the same, but they do apply in education, unlike criminal laws, right? So if civil rights laws work, and in fact, they're mandatory in education, then the question is, how do schools enforce them? You know, when when someone commits an assault that's both a crime in the real world and a civil rights offense on campus, what do the schools use for definitions? Well, until fairly recently, schools used civil rights definitions to handle civil rights problems on campus. and, And then they would send, if there was a criminal case, they would send that to the police and they would use the criminal law definitions. Over the past tech, now 10 to 20 years in particular, schools have started to merge the criminal law concepts into the Title IX concepts. And that is really has come to the point now where schools are mostly using criminal law concepts, which is outrageous. And they're only using them for women. So if I assault someone because they're black, they use civil rights concepts. They do not use the word consent. They use the word unwelcome. If the act was unwelcome and based on race, that's it. You have an offense, the person gets punished, and the school deals with it in you know five minutes flat. If you assault a woman, 
they don't use that word unwelcome anymore. They used to. They use non-consent. And then they use other criminal law terms and, and, and. I mean, it's extremely difficult. You have to show not only that it was not consensual and based on sex and interfered with your education and severe and pervasive. And it's just this laundry list of requirements for you to prove that a civil rights offense happened against a girl or a woman. And it's extremely easy to prove that an offense happened against any other type of person based on who they are in society. Why does this matter? Because now we have, despite what I just explained, which is sort of a very vivid, why on earth would you ever use the word consent when you can use unwelcome? On campuses, they are on an almost daily basis teaching students about consent only for harm to women. They do not teach consent for harm to black people or Asian people or, you know, any other kind of Jewish people. No, no. For that, they use unwelcome. And why does it matter? Because unwelcome is a subjective term, also a proxy for autonomy, but that lets you, the victim, decide whether it was offensive or not, right? If I punch you in the arm and you don't mind, that's your business, but it's whether you welcomed the punch in the arm, right? You get to decide. I don't get to say, well, wait a minute, I thought Terry wanted me to punch her in the arm while calling her you know, a racist epithet. I thought she liked that. Under civil rights laws, the response would be, it doesn't matter what you think, you're the offender. Who cares what you think? It matters how this victim feels and whether she was hurt because of who she is on campus, because she's a, an Asian woman or a black woman. You punch someone in a way that is based on who they are, offensive to them because of who they are, that's a civil rights offense, you're in trouble. You do exactly the same thing to a woman, nothing happens because you get to say as the offender, you get to say, oh, but I thought she wanted me to do this and see how that might play out with a, with a sexual assault case on campus. She didn't want it. She did not want you to touch her, period. But you, the perpetrator, get to say to the school, but I thought she did. I made a mistake. And guess what? Case disappears. You can make a mistake about offending a woman on campus under the concept of consent. You cannot make a mistake for any other category of people at all under civil rights laws, under the concept of unwelcomeness. I totally see that and agree with that perspective. We still also, in the current reality of our world, there's still going to be women who are assaulted. And even if the standard were to be changed to unwelcome to the civil rights standard, they're still going to blame themselves and not yeah. use, oh, not yeah. apply that term to their experience. Yep. Right? And yep. so culturally, we, yes, we have culturally misled women to believe that violence against them is inevitable. Absolutely. And that, and that's something, that's something that women learn in college, right? We train them in college to accept violence against them by men as the natural nature of who they are to each other and the dynamic and, and the relationships. And so that when they leave college, they're acclimated. They're ready to spend the rest of their lives being harmed and having nothing happen about, you know, having no justice, having no recourse, having nobody care. College is a training ground for a lot of things, but including training women to accept their second class status in society. And then when we hear about large numbers of rape and domestic violence and so forth, we're not surprised. We say, well, but of course, but, but it doesn't feel wrong. It doesn't feel wrong. Five women a day 
are killed by domestic violence in this country. Five a day. That's almost double where we were 30 years ago. Almost double. And that's, by the way, that same 30-year period is the period during which we've been spending millions and hundreds of millions of dollars under the Violence Against Women Act. How is that possible? That we have spent, in the 30-year period, that we have spent hundreds of millions of dollars reportedly fighting and stopping and preventing violence against women, we've doubled the number of dead women in this country from male violence. It just tells you that that money from the Violence Against Women Act isn't actually designed to stop the violence. It's designed to support programs that can pat women on the head when they're suffering the violence. Oh, you, you've just been horrendously abused and raped. Here, we'll give you some free counseling. That's where that money mostly goes. It goes to teach women that the violence is inevitable. It goes to teach women that it is uh, unpreventable. It goes to teach women to accept it, to not report it, to not expect justice, to not complain, and to be happy that at least they're getting free counseling from some useless rape crisis center nearby. That is where that money goes to. And I don't know how you justify hundreds of millions of dollars toward seemingly going toward prevention of violence against women and having the numbers of dead women go up. People have said to me, oh, well, you know, the number of sexual assaults has gone down. That's absolutely false. And it is extremely easy to manipulate the data to create falsely low numbers. We all know that. You just tweak a definition and boom, you've got no incidents, right? But you can't fake the number of dead bodies. So if we've got twice as many dead women now than 30 years ago, I'd say the Violence Against Women Act is contributing to the problem rather well, than. We preventing. also aren't collecting that data, which is why right, Don Wilcox is. Yeah. You know, so handedly, like, thankfully, John's doing it, you know, to keep track because the government doesn't want to. But, but I want to get back to your this concept of consent being misused in other settings. So, with regard to domestic violence, it's being used to create alternatives to incarceration with restorative justice programs that, instead of centering survivor safety and and freedom and liberation from their violent relationships. As I've said in other episodes, there are abuser apologists or abuser sympathizer programs because they're not actually being arrested to begin with. And so now the justification is, well, these women want it. We're centering their agency. They choose to have to engage in these restorative justice circles, you know, or therapy with their abuser because they want to fix their relationship. And then the other setting is, we talked about earlier, prostitution, where we're saying these prostituted people want to have a fully decriminalized state where traffickers and pimps get off the hook and they want to remain in these jobs. So quote unquote jobs. So I've always said, like you said, how there's no consent if they have no other choice. Let's unpack that for people who are new to these to these areas of prostitution and domestic violence. Yeah, and let's use autonomy, okay? So whether you use autonomy or consent, it doesn't matter that much to me, but let's use autonomy as the goal here. We want people to have 100% authority over the self and the decisions they make, about, especially about their bodies. So if the reason a person chooses to accept being prostituted as a job is because it is their best choice compared to no other choice, compared to homelessness, compared to, you know, a minimum wage job where she can't pay the rent or feed her children, that's not a choice. And that is certainly not consent. And it is by no means an autonomous decision. 
because an autonomous decision is made in the, in the throes of free will. You know, free will means that it is act, it is actually the decision that you want without constraint, without coercion, without external forces pushing you in one direction instead of another. Now, one could argue that there's no such thing as pure free will. And that is probably true, at least in terms of today's society, there's no such thing as pure free will. But we have always been very good at expressing our intolerance for the kind of coercion that we find unacceptable, anti-democratic, whatever, inhumane. For example, there were lots of slaves prior to abolition. There were lots of slaves who didn't want to be free. They did not want the 13th Amendment. They were afraid of freedom. They, they even maybe liked their owners. Maybe the owners were benevolent and you know, they enjoyed a, a, you know, a reasonable lifestyle. Whatever, whatever their reasons for liking where they were, it was not a real choice. They hadn't actually made a choice to be enslaved. It's, the, it's anathema. The notion of choice and slavery is anathema uh, to each other. So when slaves said, please don't free us, some, please don't free us because we are okay and we want this, we choose this, we consent to this, we as a nation said, it doesn't matter. We don't let people choose to consent to inhumane life conditions. We won't have it. And we're sorry that it disappoints you, but you as an individual are not more important than our collective values, than the class of people that seek to gain advantages from freedom. The fact that you as an individual want to enjoy your enslavement doesn't mean that that's good for all Black people. To the contrary, we've decided it's better for all Black people to be free from slavery. And so you're just going to have to suck it up. You're going to have to suck it up that your freedom from slavery is going to happen without your consent, because we think this is more important. We think this is a better thing for you than you think. So there were arguments then about, well, respecting people's right to choose that didn't go anywhere for exactly the reasons they shouldn't be going anywhere on these other arguments about choosing to be prostituted, choosing to be raped. And then in pornography, I mean, it comes up all the time that pornographers will say, she signed a consent form and, you know, she wanted to be penetrated by three men at a time while being strangled with her head in a toilet. And, you know, that she found that delightful and she chose that and that we should respect her choice as if this is something honorable. And it doesn't have to be honorable. A person can choose something that's not honorable and we can respect that. But the way it's characterized as honorable to allow her that quote unquote freedom to be hurt is what gets to me the most. There is no freedom in enslavement. There is no freedom in choosing enslavement, right? If there's no freedom in enslavement, there cannot be any freedom in choosing enslavement. And if there's no freedom in being beaten and strangled and have your head dunked in a toilet, then there's no freedom in making that choice either. And we are not that stupid that we can't see how these things are the same, right? That we don't let people make inhumane choices and celebrate it as an expression of independence. If that were true, then chaos would reign and we would regulate nothing, right? If this were really true, that we want everyone to do anything they want anytime ever because individual freedom is the only thing that matters, then we, we, we should have no laws at all because we as animals should just be allowed to, you know, kill each other, do what we want and call it a day. Civility itself wouldn't be a value 
But that's not what our constitution even says. It says ordered liberty, not chaos. <laughs> We're supposed to have ordered liberty. And ordered liberty is our way of saying that we know we need rules and constraints around what it means to have a healthy democracy and true liberty, true liberty, because there's nothing liberating about enslavement and there's nothing liberating about a woman choosing to live her life in violence. There's no liberty in that at all. And so we do it in so many different ways, not just in porn. We do it when we say the woman who wants to drop the charges in a domestic violence case will let her choose to live in a violent home if she wants to. Hell no. There's a law against that. The law says you can't beat the hell out of someone, even if she's your wife. So why would we just let her choose to violate the law? That's not how laws work. And you know, I couldn't, if, the, if my house was burning down and the fire department came along and uh, I said, no, no, I'd really rather choose to let it burn. If you don't mind, would you just go back to the station? You can't, you can't make that choice. And it's only a house. It's not even a person. There are lots of things that are uncivilized that we are very comfortable forbidding. You can't jump off Niagara Falls in a bucket if you want to. So this idea that somehow freedom to hurt oneself is a form of liberty is just pure bunk. It is a fiction. It is a fiction built around a very, 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 very wealthy industry when it comes to tolerating harm that women endure. If there weren't so much money behind it, people who claim to believe in this idea wouldn't, you know, take the money out and they'd be like, you're right, it's uncivilized. Let's not do it. But when you attach money to something, up is down and black is white and, you know, common sense leaves the room. I think we agree on all of these issues and it seems like we're not making money from talking about it, which is, which is um, why we get to keep talking about it. But, you know, of the people just to sort of expose some of the moneyed interest you know, getting back to the reproductive justice issue, if we were to have reproductive vats, et cetera, well, there's been lots of, as you said, erasure of women in language that's happening. And with regard to reproduction, there have been terms that are trying to degender um, the nature of reproduction and motherhood or parenthood and pregnancy. And it's been in the name of inclusion. So what is your perspective about having terms like menstruator or person who gives birth (laughs) instead of naming woman or woman, basically, before we have equal rights? How is that harmful to women to degender and make invisible these natural acts, which we need to have protection from? Well, let me say this. I I think that the erasure of the nature of woman is really disturbing. I think it's been going on for a long time. And I wouldn't call it degender so much as de-sex because gender identity is is anybody's business. And I I support anyone's right to say whatever they want about their gender. If they feel, I sometimes feel male and tomorrow I'll feel female and, you know, have at it, but I can't change my sex. And the biological nature of being asex is determined by some other criteria beyond how I feel, period. So sex and gender identity are never going to be the same, ever. Nonetheless, there is a move afoot in a variety of places to conflate the two, to say that sex and gender identity are the same, and they're both 
mutable, meaning you can change both by saying how you feel. If I say I feel male tomorrow, then I'm both male as a gender identity and as a sex. That's what I'm seeing in a variety of legal uh, initiatives, including, for example, the proposed Equality Act, which was passed by the House early this year, and I believe is still pending in the Senate. I've written a little bit about this, but there are a couple things that trouble me. One is that if you, if I can call myself a male tomorrow, just because it's how I feel, then I no longer need the law to give me equality because I get it just by calling myself a male. That's one really dangerous problem with the power of this language uh, trickery, if you will. The other thing is that it makes it a lot harder for women to exist as a class of people that's a discrete, as a discrete political class of people, which means it's harder to unite, mobilize, rise up in solidarity and so forth, because the lines around who we are become blurry. I'm very concerned about the inability of women to talk about sex as a political class because of our inequality. If we already had equality, this part of it wouldn't bother me nearly as much. But how do you fight for sex equality when sex isn't a thing, because it's fluid, because it's, um, because it's also maleness? Remember, only women were excluded from the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection. Only women, which means only women need to fight to get into the 14th Amendment. So if women weren't the only group excluded, maybe it wouldn't matter so much. But because we were the only group intentionally excluded, we need to stay together as a group until we get in there. Then we can have all kinds of conversations because it won't matter as much, right? But we need the political power of unity, which is harder when the lines around what a class looks like become murky. And maybe more importantly at all, uh, than all, than at, more important than anything is this idea that with sex and gender identity conflated and optional, changeable. When I go to court and argue about the importance of giving women that bump up to full equality, the courts can say, well, you know, since sex is changeable as opposed to fixed, you're not really entitled because you don't need it as much. You're not entitled to the kind of super legal protection we give to race and national origin. Race and national origin get this super legal protection of strict scrutiny because the Supreme Court has said those things are immutable. They're not changeable. They're born with you. You can't fix it. Now, I'm not even sure I agree with that. I mean, I think you can change race because you can be some a little bit white, a little bit black. You can be 17 different things, right? You can change your race in the sense that you can be more than one race. You can change your religion, right? But religion is also entitled to that super level of protection. There are things you, you can't change about your sex, even if you cut off body parts. I mean, body parts are not the only way we figure out whether a person is a male or female. You can't change your sex by even taking off body parts because sex is biological in another way. It's the gametes and it's the, uh, the hormones and it's the chromosomes. You know, it's like, you can't change sex. So even if you could change sex, I would say, let's talk about the harm of blurring the lines around what the category looks like, because we still need to achieve sex equality, but you can't change sex. So what's the harm in having these categories be separate, have sex as a category and have gender identity as a category. That way, everybody gets protection. And I want everyone to have equal protection. I think people 
who choose to characterize themselves according to gender identity, just like people who would rather prioritize their race or ethnicity or religion and, you know, walk around saying, I only want to be known as a Jew. I don't want to be known as a woman. I don't want to be known as an American. I just want to be known as a Jew. You can choose that. Now, we may still see you in a way that you don't feel matters. I might look at you and say, well, you look like a woman to me, but if you want to prioritize your Jewishness, that's fine. I can respect that. But you can't expect people to say that that decision you make about how you feel and what matters to you and what the priorities are in your life, how you want to spend your time focused on that way of being, that that means your biological reality doesn't exist. It just doesn't mean that. It just doesn't. I could identify as Black. I'm clearly not Black. I could identify as Black and and, and I could be sincere. What if I when born into a Black family and raised by a Black family and raised in, in, in really, you know, disproportionately large Black community with very few other people around? I would feel Black. And I could tell you, I'm telling you, I identify as Black. And it would be sincere. But you would look at me and say, but you're not Black. And you would be correct. And that's okay. You're correct. And I'm correct. I identify as Black, but you're right, I'm not biologically Black. We're both right. And because we're both right, there's absolutely no need to to mix these two things together and try to have a fight about who's right. If you respect gender identity as an important thing, which it is, and you respect sex as an important thing or race as an important thing, which it is, then you get the benefits of both worlds, if you will. And as long as everybody gets equal rights and no one is discriminated because of gender identity or sex or race, as long as we don't have discrimination and everyone's protection against discrimination is equal, why would you try to conflate any of these things? It doesn't serve any purpose so to conflate we, categories. So what can we do to prevent that from happening, to prevent the conflation, specifically with regard to the Equality Act? Does it have to be presented in conjunction with the ERA if both of them are past, will that then protect women? Or does it have to be in a certain order? Or do we have to, is there language that needs to be amended? I would change the Equality Act. Yeah. I mean, we'll see what happens with the ERA. But the funny thing is the ERA, which was first proposed in 1923, uses the word sex in terms of, you know, it says equality of rights shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. It only uses sex because only sex was excluded. So we weren't trying to be exclusionary, we were trying to say we were the only ones not ex- not included. So that's why we're trying to stick ourselves back in. But the idea that the Equality Act is recognizing that there are lots of other ways of being beyond what existed in 1923. And in, in fact, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there were people of all types around in the 1800s and of course, 1923. The fact that the law didn't care, I guess, you know, is worth considering. But the solution of conflation makes no sense to me. So the, the Equality Act could be rewritten to make sure that all categories are equal, because that's what it purports to be saying, right? It wants all categories to be equal. And, you know, there are lots of gay people, lesbian women in particular, have, um, have been so concerned about the Equality Act because they, people keep telling them they identify as lesbian. They're like, I don't identify as lesbian. I am lesbian. That murkiness of the word identify is really problematic for people who feel very concrete about who they are. And so I think we have to be careful not to bring that word identity 
beyond that category of gender identity. It's, it's, a de- it's definitely a category and it's worthy of respect, equal respect. But let's not put that word identity into other existing categories because of what it does to diminish the integrity of those meanings, those, ca- those classes of people. So we can do that, right? We could fix the Equality Act by decoupling the conflation problem. And there's another part of the, conf- the, the Equality Act that I'm deeply distraught about that no one's written about yet. I, I have a piece that's coming out soon on this. You know, consider that you and I have just been talking for a long time about how this conflation thing seems to be going on in lots of different places. And it's not just about the Equality Act. It's about a variety of different venues where people are, whether it's just run-of-the-mill language that in, in a school that people are being told, you know, don't use the, the word woman, for example, or refer to a pregnant woman as a, a gestator or whatever. So those aren't laws, they're cultural requests, if you will. And all this stuff is happening all over the place, but people are not paying attention to a piece of the Equality Act that actually very clearly segregates gender identity from sex. And when I read it, I'm like, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to be doing conflating in this act. And let me explain. So we talked a little bit about Title IX. As you know, there are two civil rights laws that matter in education, Title IX and Title VI. They are exactly the same, except Title IX covers sex, Title VI covers race, color, and national origin. They are otherwise exactly the same in language, in terms of the statutory language. Well, the Equality Act seeks to add transgender to Title VI alongside race and national origin, not Title IX alongside sex, which is very curious. The Equality Act wants transgender to be protected on par with race and national origin, while sex, women, remains a separate, different, and worse treated category under Title IX. So my question to the trans community is, I thought you wanted gender identity and sex to be conflated and to be the same. So why aren't you joining transgender into Title IX? And you know the answer. Title IX is horrendous. It's been destroyed. It has been completely crushed. It's much, much, much worse than Title VI. It provides much worse legal protections, much worse legal protections than Title VI. They used to be the same when they were passed, you know, and back in 72, when Title IX was first enacted, it was exactly the same as Title VI. Schools didn't respect it the same, but the laws were very much the same. So here we are all these years later, trans people want to be smushed in with sex but why not in Title IX? I mean, because what's this going to mean on campus? On campus, if you're going to have only women protected under Title IX, but trans women and trans people protected under Title VI, so what happens when the trans woman is attacked? Does she report it under Title IX because she wants to see herself as a woman? Or is she not allowed to do that because it's not sex? Or is it sex? I mean, the Equality Act says it's not sex. Except in another part, it says it is sex. So where do you report? And then if we're going to have people on campus saying, well, trans people and trans women in particular are not the same as women because women are protected under Title IX, trans people are protected under Title VI. So we've just created segregation between these two classes of people that the Equality Act supposedly says ought to be treated the same. All of a sudden, we're calling trans women, trans women rather than women, to make sure they don't get mixed up with Title IX, right? And then we're going to get yelled at. Why are you calling her a trans woman? She's a woman. Well, but that would put her under Title IX. So I have to use this different label. Administrators, teachers, 
everyone on campus is going to have to use a different label for trans women than non-trans women because of how they're segregated and subjected to very different treatment standards on campus. So what I think of when I read this, when I saw this language, I thought, why didn't they just propose to add everything to Title VI? You know, get rid of Title IX, just put everything under Title VI, which women wanted to do back in 1972 anyway. And higher ed lobbied heavily against that. And that's one of the reasons we ended up with a separate and unequal law. But, you know, why not put everybody under Title VI? Well, the trans community won't support that, which tells you something, doesn't it? Why won't the trans community support adding women to Title VI alongside trans? Why? Why? And then it comes to me, it's because they don't actually want equality. They want erasure of sex. They don't want equality with sex. They want erasure of sex. They don't actually want equality. This is primarily, in my mind, an agenda, a hidden agenda that's not even that hidden, a hidden agenda of using language and the legal status of transgender people generally to erase women and reduce their political value, political power, political cohesion. Um, Because to me, if you really wanted to erase sex on campus, you'd get rid of Title IX because Title IX only protects sex. So if you really want to like collapse sex and gender identity, you have to abolish Title IX. And no one in the trans community is willing to do that, which is very interesting. How do we know it's not because they recognize the weakness of Title IX and in that respect, they're trying to be strategic and, and benefit from strong oh, yeah. protection. Oh, of course. Of but course not necessarily intentionally erasure, but... Yeah, but, it, but, but what I'm saying is, yes, of course they want the better protections of Title VI. Of course they do. But what I'm saying is, I thought the goal, the ostensible goal anyway, was to make sure sex and gender identity were the same. Now, if you keep sex separate under Title IX while trans gets under Title VI, you have just created a regime that will force the separate and different labeling, labeling of trans women from women. You can't not separate and label them differently. We're going to have, it's, it's going to be impossible to avoid the binary. You know, we're going to have to have women, men, and trans. That's how campuses are going to have to be under the Equality Act because Title IX only covers sex. It's a thing. It's a real thing. And if you want to collapse and integrate, you have to put sex in Title VI. And no one will support that because the goal isn't actually to equate and you know make everyone equal. That's not the actual goal of the Equality Act. The actual goal of the Equality Act is to subjugate women, erase and subjugate women. There's no other excuse. You can't have it both ways. Conflate for some things, separate for others. There's no integrity in that. There's no integrity. And it really does reveal the true agenda, if you ask me, which is to say that the trans activists that support the Equality Act are very comfortable with women's subjugation, very comfortable. And they don't actually want equality. They want subjugation and erasure of women through the use of the word sex, period. I mean, there's no other explanation for their separate and worse treatment of Title IX in the Equality Act. And this goes for the... uh politicians who have not come out in support of the ERA while they're still advocating for equal pay and removal of pregnancy discrimination, all those other things as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, let's talk about that. So 
you know, the Equal Rights Amendment, um, which we've been fighting for for 100 years, finally passed, finally was ratified by the last necessary state in January 2020 when Virginia ratified. And right away, the United States archivist blocked its impact by refusing to publish it in the Federal Register. And, you know, just for people who don't know, the archivist is like our librarian, our country's librarian. And the archivist has a job to do a very ministerial task, non-discretionary ministerial task, which is when a law becomes law, you literally put it in the books. That's what he does. That's his job. And it's mandatory. He's not a lawyer. He doesn't have to think about whether the law is good or bad or constitutional or not. He just puts it in the damn book. So when the ERA was ratified, he refused to put it in the book, which interfered with the efficacy of the ERA and forced us to file lawsuits. I kind of knew something was going to happen anyway, so I was ready to file suit. And I did file suit in January of 2020 in federal court in Massachusetts. I sued the archivist, asking the court to order him to publish. So what's interesting is that Trump was in office at that time. And, and the, one of the reasons the archivist didn't publish was because then Attorney General Bill Barr wrote a legal memorandum telling the archivist, you know, you can't publish because the ERA is, is not valid because the deadline on ratification expired many years ago. So flash ahead, now we're into the presidential campaign, and a lot of these run-of-the-mill establishment women's groups urged women to vote for Joe Biden on the grounds that he would remove the Bill Barr memo, tell the archivist to publish, and stop fighting us in our lawsuit. So when I sued the archivist, Bill Barr's Department of Justice opposed us and fought against the ERA. Well, a lot of women voted for Biden, and after November, we were very excited that Biden would do the right thing. And he gets into office. By the way, during his entire campaign, he didn't mention the ERA once. Didn't mention it once, which was not surprising to me, since I don't think either party gives a damn about women's equality. But it was surprising to some women who felt like Biden should care, would care, whatever. Um, And of course, you know, Kamala Harris being in office, we all kind of just accepted, of course, she's going to support the ERA. No, no and no. Biden did not do anything. Kamala Harris hasn't done anything. Neither of them has mentioned the ERA at all. They both have mentioned the Equality Act. They have (laughs) strong feelings about supporting the Equality Act, despite its harm to women, which is pretty disturbing. But on top of that, they haven't supported the ERA. And what that means now is that Biden's been in office now for whatever, five months? No, four months. Yeah, he's been in office for four months. He continues to fight the lawsuit against us. And there's another lawsuit in DC federal court. He's continuing to fight that lawsuit as well. Um, He has not removed the Bill Barr memo blocking the ERA, uh, though we have a new attorney general, Merrick Garland. He has not removed the Bill Barr memo declaring the ERA invalid. Unbelievable, except not to me. And then because the president is the head of the executive branch and the archivist is a subordinate within the executive branch, Biden could just call him up and say, listen, publish the ERA. You don't have to obey the Department of Justice. He doesn't. He chose to, but he doesn't have to. Um, So Biden could just call him and say, just publish the damn ERA. Just put it in there. Put it in there. Do it because it's your job. And he has refused. So in these three different ways, Biden is doing exactly the same thing that Trump did against women's equality, will not tell the archivist to publish, has not removed the Bill Barr memo, continues to fight against the ERA in two federal lawsuits. That's Joe Biden. 
the exact same legal position as Donald Trump. That's where women stand in this country. We have no party. We have nothing. And that's one of the reasons I've been calling for the establishment of a new women's party, or at least a women's union. I'd like to establish something called the Women's Equality Union. Just call it a union. Who cares what we call it? But let's unite and unite only around this issue of equality, nothing else, not abortion, not equal pay, just equality, period, until we get it done. One issue, one group, until we're done. Laser focus on equality. This is how we won suffrage. Suffrage was filed in, oh boy, I I think it was filed in the late 1800s, the first suffrage bill, the first time an amendment was proposed to give women the right to vote was filed in the late 1800s. It didn't even make it past Congress until 1919, which was like 40 years after it was filed. Well, guess what? The reason it finally got passed through Congress was because women formed their own political party in 1916. (laughs) If women hadn't formed their own party in 1916, it never would have passed Congress in 1919 and then been ratified by the states in 1920. This is not complicated. This is not rocket science. When you unite, when you establish not just a party, but when you establish group power, unity, like a union, when you do that, you make change possible. Women don't have that. We haven't had that since the early 1900s, since the Women's Party. We've been fractured ever since. The reason we've been fractured ever since is because... Men in power saw how powerful we became when we did unite and we did create our own party. So, you know, take a lesson. We won the right to vote because we united only around the right to vote. The Women's Party only fought for suffrage. They didn't give a damn about anything else. One issue, one party, unity, solidarity, they got the job done. That's how we're going to win equality. One party, unity, solidarity, one issue, laser focus until it happens. The problem is there's no, not only no leadership, no women's leadership in this country, there's, no, there, there's counter leadership, if you will. So we don't have leadership with this very simple philosophy. We have money fueling establishment women's groups whose purpose is to prevent unity. <laughs> so good luck with that. Good luck with that. But we need it. And I think young people can make it happen, but they have to have consciousness first. They have to have political will Leadership is important and inspirational. Inspirational leadership comes from inspirational people teaching young people, right? Like they're going to, the young people are going to do this only if they feel inspired and there's no one teaching them any of this stuff. So how are they going to get inspired to do this? Where are they going to get that message? You know, women don't own the media. Wendy, you need your own reality show. <laughs> like I'm living one, and, and it's a very, very dark one. <laughs> All right. Well, we've come to the point of the conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions I call the engendered questionnaire. And the first question is What is at stake in the struggle to end gender based violence and oppression? Well, the simple answer is women's lives. What's at stake? I mean, five women a day are dying from men's violence. Millions more are raped, beaten, and abused every year. That's what's at stake. Women's very lives, their ability to walk free in society doesn't get more basic than that. Listen, I know we're fighting for equal pay. 
dead women don't need equal pay and they sure as hell don't need contraception. Like, let's just get focused, right? We got a lot of dead women in this country, dead because of men, period. And we need to fix that. We need to focus on that. What gives you hope? (laughs) Oh, you know, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that because in my years in this business, things have gotten so much worse. My my colleagues always call me Eeyore because I I say the truth and it's not exciting to hear me say the truth. It's like, you know, they want to give up. I think the only thing I can say, well, I'll say two things. One is young people always give me hope because they have the ability to use social media and to inspire themselves and each other uh, beyond the contours of mainstream media, which is helpful and hopeful. And they also, you know, they also are going into a world where things are so bad that they're going to have to do something to make them better. I mean, that to me, I hate to say it, but it's like, where does my hope come from? It comes from the idea that we may well soon get to such a horrendous point that people rise up. That's hopeful. It's kind of a dark hopeful, but it's hopeful. Oh, and, I don't final, and final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Okay, so I have a huge slideshow on this topic that I would be happy to talk about at another time because it's a really complicated answer. But in terms of focusing just on gender-based violence generally, the number one recommendation I can make is to get people focused on the importance of justice and legal redress because the research tells us that men will stop the violence if they fear repercussions, if they fear going to jail, if they fear getting in trouble, and frankly, if they fear being shamed in their communities. So we need to do all those things. We need to ramp up the shame, ramp up the arrests, ramp up the prosecutions, ramp up the the incarcerations. It's not that I think incarceration is the solution to all social problems. It's that there is so much good research that shows it actually does help save women's lives that we'd be foolish not to work on that. And then relatedly, you know, this notion that that incarcerating people is anti-democratic and, you know, bad for humanity, that may well be true. I'm not experienced enough to say, but what I can say is so long as we're locking up anybody for anything, for bank robberies, for home invasions, so long as we're locking police who, who kill black men, innocent black men, so long as we are locking up anybody for anything, and so long as we're demanding justice on behalf of people who, for example, beat the hell out of Asians or black people, or, you know, because it happens every day, right? That something bad happens to an Asian person and we rise up and say, we want justice, that person should go to jail. You know, a cop kills a black man, we rise up, we want justice, that, that cop should go to jail. We need to say the same thing about men who beat up and kill women. I mean, we, we just need to have that same attitude because why wouldn't we? Why would we support not incarcerating and arresting and, you know, having equal justice for women and then try to justify it by saying, well, we think incarceration is, um, is inhumane. It can't be inhumane only when you lock up people who beat up certain types and not when you lock up people who beat up women. It's either inhumane or it isn't. But, you know, it's kind of this, I, I hear this so often, this doublespeak about, well, what about due process for the offender? And I'm like, well, but you can't only, you can't call it 
You can't call second class treatment of women due process and expect me to say, okay, that's fine. So long as your maltreatment of me is packaged in the language of due process, go ahead and, you know, mistreat me. No, hell no. Mistreatment of women by giving them limited access to justice or second class access to justice or less punishment for the perpetrators uh, violence against women. It doesn't matter to me that you think not locking men up is a good thing generally. It matters to me that you're characterizing the second class treatment of women in that way because you're just trying to mislead people into not understanding the importance of equal treatment under the law for women. Well, I think we need to have that second conversation to, to, to address all of the slides in this uh, deck that you just referenced. But thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate the time that you've taken to explore all of these very important and to some extent controversial topics. And hopefully it'll be helpful and informative for our audience. Well, I hope so too, Terry. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed this. You are so smart. And I have to say that because this stuff is hard. And there aren't a lot of people, when I do podcasts, there aren't a lot of people who can get to the nub of the issues. I think you did a great job. And I really appreciate that because it allows me to feel like, uh, you know, I bring some special value to a podcast rather than talking about things that are not well understood or responding to questions that are more general. Your pointed questions were really helpful to me uh, and made me feel like, wow, you know, <laughs> I get to say something that actually matters. Please keep up the good work with your podcast and don't give up even though I'm a bit of an Eeyore. <laughs> you too. Thank you, Wendy. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.